Welcome to Cowan Insights, a space that brings leading thinkers together to share insights and ideas shaping the world around us. Join us as we converse with the top minds who are influencing our global sectors. Hey everyone, Mark Bianchi here from the Cowan Energy team. On this installment of the Cowan Energy Transition Podcast, I'm joined by Simon Moore, who heads up sustainability as well as corporate and investor relations at Air Products. Industrial gas companies like Air Products occupy an interesting convergence of hydrogen and carbon capture, where they have legacy experience in producing and handling hydrogen and CO2 for several decades and varying plans to leverage these capabilities into energy transition. Air Products is the most ambitious in these plans with three major low carbon hydrogen projects under development, including by far the largest green hydrogen project in Saudi Arabia. So Simon, thanks so much for joining us. Before we jump into the discussion, can you give us a few minutes on who you are, what's your experience in the industry and what your current role at APD involves? Sure. Thanks, Mark. And just first of all, let me say thank you to you and the rest of the Cowan team for giving us the opportunity to have this very interesting and exciting conversation today. So as you said, Air Products today is a leader in the hydrogen space. We got substantial production and distribution experience, and I know we'll get into that and talk about it some more. But we've also been successfully operating a carbon capture system for the last eight years. And as you said, we've announced major projects, $10 billion of real projects that we're executing. So as a company, I think we're really, really proud of our position in hydrogen today and very excited about where it can go in the future. Mark, in terms of my role, I've got responsibility for investor relations. I've got responsibility for government relations globally, as well as sustainability. And, uh, you know, you may think that's a strange combination of things, but I think it's actually indicative of the fact that these subjects are no longer separate topics. Sustainability is no longer, well, at least at Air Products, it's not. It's not a separate thing over on its side. It's absolutely part of our growth strategy. It drives our growth strategy. And of course, it's top of mind for our investors. So having responsibility for all those areas uh, kind of allows us to bring those key components together. So let's start with your existing footprint in hydrogen. You've got a lot of hydrogen production already, I think mainly through steam methane reformation known as SMR. Um, that process, and I suppose most hydrogen uh, from fossil fuel produces around 10 tons of CO2 per ton of hydrogen. So there's an obvious opportunity to capture some of that CO2, uh, which you're doing in some instances. So talk to us about what you currently have in hydrogen, CO2, and carbon capture. Sure. Great question, Mark. Well, again, you know, a lot of people talk about hydrogen as if it's something way out there in the future. And there are certainly some very new and interesting applications that I think will grow over the future. But hydrogen is here today. I mean, hydrogen has been with us for decades. Air Products has really been a leader in the idea of the refining industry outsourcing their hydrogen production. That goes back 30 plus years. And one of the interesting things today is we talk about sustainability driving our growth strategy. But that's really what the hydrogen business is about today. As you know, it is primarily used by the refining industry to clean up transportation fuels. So we have a business today that's already hydrogen. It's about 22% of air product sales, about 9,000 tons a day of hydrogen production. And it is going to help make uh, environmental improvements for our refining customers. 
Now, again, as you said, uh, most of our plants are steam methane reformers because to be frank, if there's no value for the emitted CO2, that's the most economic way to make hydrogen. That's why the world does it that way today. Um, and you know, what's exciting for us is as the world focuses more and more on the real impact of emitted CO2, we've got demonstrated expertise in carbon capture. And what I mean by that is we retrofitted uh, two existing steam methane reformers in Port Arthur, Texas about eight years ago. So this idea of retrofitting, as you know, Mark, when you wanna retrofit something, that's very different than building it from new. But we were able to retrofit those facilities with a carbon capture system. And we've been operating that successfully for eight years, capturing a million tons a year of CO2. And we've been able to do that while maintaining very, very high reliability hydrogen supply to our refining customers. So to be frank, that operating expertise is really, really important because it might be great to capture the CO2 off of a hydrogen plant, but if by doing that, you negatively impact the efficiency or the reliability of the hydrogen plant, that's not gonna work out very, very well for anybody. So I know we'll talk about the potential for the future, but one of the things that Air Products is most excited about is we have a portfolio of technologies. And we have a portfolio of experiences and we can bring those together in the unique circumstances that fit the situation the best to create the best solution for, for our customers uh, and for any of the projects that we're doing. Mm -hmm. <clears throat> okay, great. And when we start talking about capturing CO2 off of a hydrogen production process, I think with SMR, um, you guys have said that you can kind of economically capture 50% of the CO2 off an SMR, but my understanding is it's physically possible, um, though maybe not economically possible, but physically possible to capture 95% from the whole SMR process. What, what needs to be added to get up to that 95% level and, and what needs to happen for it to become economical? Well, warning for the listeners, we're about to go into just a little bit of chemistry, but we won't go into this too far. Well, really, Mark, the best way to think about a steam methane reformer is there's two different streams of flow through the SMR. There's what we call the process side, and that's where we're actually making the hydrogen and the natural gas over catalyst mixed with steam makes the hydrogen. There's CO2 in there, but it's, you're going you're gonna to separate that to get the purity of hydrogen you want. So that process side is a relatively high concentration, high pressure stream of CO2. And so that's the one that's very relatively easy to capture, so-called capture ready CO2. And so when we say that really you can only economically capture 50%, quite frankly, you can do anything given enough money and enough energy, but it's really the CO2 in the process side that is practical and economic to capture. And that's in the neighborhood of 50% of the CO2. The other side of this is essentially a combustion stream. We're combusting natural gas and air outside of the process to create the heat that allows that, that chemical reaction to take place. And so what you end up there is you end up with a stream that has CO2 in it, but it's a very dilute stream of CO2. It's uh, at low pressure. And one of the reasons it's so dilute is, of course, when you combust something in air, the oxygen is what combusts, but the nitrogen just gets carried through. So really, that other side of the stream is just like any other combustion stream, where it's quite dilute and low pressure, and therefore much more expensive. 
So again, of course you can capture 95% of the CO2 off a of steam methane reformer, but it's much, much more uh, economic to do that first 50% off the process side. And I won't jump to the next question, but I think we're foreshadowing a little bit of why gasifiers make great sense when you are focused on capturing a significant amount of the CO2. Yeah, no, that's, that is the logical next question, right? So you've got your two greenfield projects, you're using uh, auto thermal reforming, ATR and, and partial oxidation POX, um, rather than, than SMR to, to capture up to 95% of the CO2. Can you give an overview of these, these two projects um, briefly uh, and how the, the POX and ATR are able to capture 95% economically? Yeah, great. And again, they're different processes. So I would say the ATR and the POX, for the purposes of this conversation, let's call them the same process, gasification. There's some subtle differences. But at the end of the day, gasification is the hydrocarbon, in this case, natural gas, and oxygen coming together, and there's no nitrogen in that process. So we talked about kind of combusting the hydrocarbon in air in the steam methane reformer example, which creates a dilute stream of CO2 with a lot of nitrogen in it. Here, I really, if it's very simple, Mark, I only have the process side. I don't actually have a combustion side. And so what comes out the back is a pretty concentrated stream of CO2. And of course, you know, you're gonna to wanna to separate that CO2 anyway, because you're typically looking for the hydrogen or the CO or the syngas. And so that's what makes it much, much more economical. That's also why you essentially have an air separation unit as part of this process because you need to produce that oxygen. So again, if you don't care about CO2 capture, quite frankly, you'd keep using steam methane reformers. If you do care about CO2 capture and want to capture greater than 95%, you absolutely need to look at gasification of the hydrocarbon. And as you said, that's exactly what we're doing in the billion dollar Canada project and the four and a half billion dollar Louisiana project. Mm -hmm. And why, why ATR in Canada and POX in the U.S.? I mean, is there anything specific about the projects that lend themselves more to, to one or the other? Well, Mark, again, I think for the purposes, I mean, it, it's almost easier to think of them as slightly, uh, you know, different shades of kind of the same idea, right? They're both gasification technologies. They do have some fairly subtle differences. We obviously, again, having this portfolio of technologies available to us, we evaluated each of them and they were the best fit for those projects. But for example, let, let, let me just build on this, right? This idea of bringing the right technology solution to bear, as you said, both of these projects are gonna put low carbon hydrogen into our pipeline networks. But in the case of Canada, we're also gonna take some of that hydrogen and liquefy it because we think that there is a pretty significant opportunity in the trucking market, in the mobility market in that area and for relatively modest distances, liquefying the hydrogen is a great distribution source. Uh, a solution. Mm -hmm. But then if we look at the Louisiana project, again, in addition to putting hydrogen in the pipeline network, there we're seeing that being distributed over broader areas, further distances. And in that case, just like our NEON project, we're going to take some of that hydrogen, turn it into ammonia, because that broader, longer distribution chain for that ammonia is, uh, or for that hydrogen, is much more economical to do via ammonia, and then we'll crack it back to hydrogen at the other end. So I just use that as another example of, you know, a portfolio of technologies, being able to choose the one that fits best in each project. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay. So it, it certainly seems like gasification is maybe the way forward if we're 
if we're capturing uh, CO2 or doing low carbon hydrogen from fossil fuel, why, why is APD well positioned here? I mean, I know you have lots of gasification projects all over the world, but it seems like several companies can do gasification or get their hands on gasification technology. Why, why do you think you have an advantage here? Well, again, Mark, in, in this case, we actually uh, we actually own some of the key gasification technologies ourselves. As you might recollect, over the last couple of years, we went out and bought two of the leading gasification technologies. So we own them ourselves. Um, but that's also complemented with our operating experience. We've operated a natural gas pox plant in Laporte, Texas for decades. So we have hands-on operating experience with that. So it's the combination, I think, of the technology the proven experience to execute these projects. And again, the proven experience to operate these plants in a very, very reliable manner. That's what's gonna give us an advantage to these projects. But let me also say, Mark, uh, we're competitive people. We'd like to win every project that there is out there. But for the world to be successful in the energy transition that it wants to go on, the role that hydrogen is going to play in this energy transition, there will absolutely have to be other projects done by other people. No company on the planet could do all of these projects themselves. So to some degree, we, we look forward to others doing these projects as well. Great. Um, maybe switching over to, to retrofits um, and, and kind of the opportunity to, to, to take CO2 out of existing processes. Just before we get into that, can you explain the liability or the responsibility of CO2 as it, as it exists? And if there's a distinction between maybe your on-site business versus your merchant and package business first? Yeah, great question, Mark. So again, we'll talk about the business first, then we'll maybe come back and talk about kind of the, the actual doing of this. So our business model for our on-site business and the vast majority of our hydrogen is in the on-site business model, as I said, going to the refining industry. In that business model, the customer has the financial risk of the, any CO2 emissions. So for example, if we're in a place in the world where all of a sudden there was a CO2 tax or you had to buy offsets, we would have to do that as the owner and operator of the hydrogen plant emitting the CO2, but we would pass those CO2 costs on directly to the customer. So this is not a downside risk for air products. We're not exposed to a significant amount of CO2 credits or offsets, but what it does, as you can imagine, it creates a situation where we'll go to our customers and we have great relationships with these customers. And we'll say, hey, look, we're emitting this CO2 and now there is uh, you know, cost, let's say, for that CO2 being emitted. And we can keep going to buy the offsets or the tax, passing them on to you as the customer, but maybe there's a better answer here. Why don't we go in and retrofit this facility and build a carbon capture system? And oh, by the way, I'll show you what we did in Port Arthur eight years ago. And then we will extend our on-site business model. We will say to the customer, we'll put up the capital, we'll operate this, we'll pay for it essentially, but we want you to uh, sign up for a long-term a fixed price agreement. So we see this as a, not again, not a downside risk, but a business opportunity to expand our onsite business. So again, Mark, the customer has the responsibility and the customer will get the risk and reward of us putting in a carbon capture system. And then in terms of, you know, the ability to do that, I think it, it only makes intuitive sense that the people that are operating the hydrogen plant should be the ones to go in and retrofit and also operate the carbon capture system. 
as I said early on, uh, anytime you add uh, another piece of kit, another piece of process equipment to the back of a plant, you got to make sure you don't screw up the reliability or the efficiency. Mm-hmm. Now, mm-hmm. you also asked about our merchant business, but I think it's important to recognize that really the hydrogen is almost all in the on-site business. There's very little uh, hydrogen in our merchant business today. And obviously, in that business, you have the opportunity to reprice on a more regular basis. So you're not stuck in a long-term contract, even if there was some some CO2 cost that was associated there. And fair to say, um, almost in any situation, that really, you're not going to be replacing an SMR with a gasification in those instances. It just doesn't make economic sense. Well, I think, Mark, it, 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 you know, I, I would say um, it's kind of like your car, right? So you buy your car, and in year one, it's, it's great, and the maintenance costs are very, very low. But by the time you get to year 10 or 15 on your car, it's not as efficient, and it's breaking down, and the maintenance costs get higher. And so in our experience, there's not a single point in time where you'd say, okay, I want to replace this thing. What happens is, just like any other plant, slowly over time, they become less efficient and more maintenance heavy. Now, if I had a 30-year-old steam methane reformer and there was no value for CO2, maybe I keep running that for another five years. But if I had a 30-year-old steam methane reformer, I'm not sure I'm going to retrofit that with a carbon capture system. So I think what it could do is it could shift the balance a little bit. As you're evaluating, does it, when does it make sense to replace an asset if you have to spend a significant amount of money to retrofit the existing plant, I do think that might mean you might replace it a little bit sooner. And when you do replace it, you replace it with a gasifier. Um, so, I mean, kind of hypothetical, but in terms of a brand new, uh, well-operated hydrogen plant, you would certainly retrofit that before you would uh, you know, shut it down and replace it. So. Yep. <clears throat> no, it makes total sense. Um, maybe l- let's switch over and talk a bit about the capture side of things. What kind of technology are you using in your capture projects right now? Um, what's the technology that's being contemplated, if different at all, for, for these new projects that you have in backlog? Is there some uh, amine sorbent or that, that you're using, which I think is sort of the most broadly adopted um, technique, or, or is there another kind of process? And if so, are there any notable differences in capture technology that, that would make you choose one over another? Yeah, great question, Mark. Well, there are a variety of technologies, but but what's good about this is these are not brand new technologies. So let's take our existing hydrogen plants. When we make hydrogen, it's got CO2 in it. Our customers don't want CO2 in the hydrogen. So we already have to get that CO2 out of the hydrogen stream so that we can deliver that uh, you know high purity hydrogen to our customers. So many, many chemical processes have the need to get the CO2 out of the product stream. So my point is it's a pretty well-developed uh, technology. At our Perth Arthur project, we use a VSA, vacuum swim absorption technology to adsorb the CO2. And then, uh, you know, then that's captured. As you pointed out, more commonly, it's an amine-based system. So there are differences in those technologies and they have pros and cons in different applications, but it's not like we need to, quite frankly, develop a new carbon capture technology. Uh, That technology exists and can be deployed. I think the other thing that is important to talk about is, okay, great, you capture the CO2, what are you going to do with it, right? You can't just capture a million tons a year of CO2 and and you got to have something to do with it. So 
what drives many of these projects is not just the ability to retrofit the plant and capture it, but are you in a place where you can do something with this CO2? Our Port Arthur project, the CO2 is used for enhanced oil recovery. The Louisiana project and the Canada project will be able to utilize the infrastructure and the geology there to sequester the CO2. And I'm sure we'll talk a little bit more about sequestering it, but I think uh, you know sometimes people underestimate what sequestration means. I'll just headline this by saying sequestering the CO2 generally means putting it about a mile under the Earth's surface. So this isn't quite like digging a hole in your backyard and a little hose of CO2 going in there. This is a pretty serious operation to get the CO2 to a place in the geology where we're confident it'll stay there forever. Mm -hmm. Yep. Okay. Um, it, it sounds like the the capture process itself is fairly commoditized or well-established. I mean, as you think about the the whole blue hydrogen process, is there much opportunity for, for cost reduction, maybe either on the on the gasification side or, or further downstream, um, you know, when you think about the next five to 10 years? Well, it's a great point, Mark. And I, I think there's always optimization, right? We got a bunch of smart people who work really, really hard on optimizing this. So the uh, CO2 extraction technologies exist, but they haven't been used in exactly this same configuration. So they will work. But can you optimize? Can you reduce the capital cost a little bit? Can you reduce the operating costs? There are definitely opportunities for doing that. And quite frankly, we see some of those opportunities being developed by the first mover advantage we're creating. The fact that we're doing, as we said, $10 billion of real projects today, we're gonna uh, have very, very successful projects, and then we'll take those learnings and be able to benefit future projects from that. Mm -hmm. So most of what we've talked about is in North America. Um, you guys have a, a, a fairly large portfolio of gasification outside North America, in Asia, and around the world. Um, those seem like opportunities for, for capture installation. What, what's the outlook there? Do you see a lot of installation uh, for those markets? Does there need to be some sort of a carbon price instituted in those markets? What, what's the way forward there? Yeah, great question. And uh, I'll, I'll just maybe touch on Europe real quick before I jump over to Asia. Obviously, you know, we have hydrogen facilities in Europe as well. Uh, we have them in the Rotterdam area. And there's actually a project that we hope happens called the Portos project, which could have a few of us capture the CO2 from our facilities and put it in a common CO2 pipe and sequester it under the North Sea. So my point just was pointing out there's some activity uh, potential there. So as you said, Mark, when we turn to Asia, most of the gasification there is not natural gas. It tends to be solids, uh, typically coal, but everything we talked about is still true. Everything we talked about, about the capture ready aspect of the CO2 stream from a gasifier is still true, whether the feedstock is a natural gas hydrocarbon or a coal hydrocarbon. So we absolutely do see the opportunity potentially for retrofits of gasifier projects, but certainly new gasifier projects that would incorporate carbon capture. Because again, if we go back to the fundamentals, why do some of these countries want to look at gasification? As we've talked before, it's primarily because it allows them to use the natural resources they have, in many cases, coal, it allows them to use it in a much use the coal in a much more environmentally friendly way than just burning the coal. Gasification is much more environmentally friendly than coal. And it creates a CO2 stream that's relatively concentrated, relatively easy to capture. 
Now, as we said in the last question, it's got to be in a place where you can do something with that CO2, but certainly there are places where there are gasification projects, we certainly have the potential to sequester the CO2. So quite frankly, in the long run, we think being able to go to some of these customers with, again, a full solution now, which includes, of course, the ASU, the gasifier itself, the syngas cleanup, and the carbon capture actually makes this offering even potentially more attractive in the long term. But as you said, the rules and regulations need to be in place to create economic value for the capturing of that CO2. And at this point, I think that's still under development. We've certainly heard China's very serious ambitions about reducing their carbon footprint, but I think it is in the process in a place like China for those ambitions to be translated into the specific regulatory frameworks that will create the value for the captured CO2. So I think it's an exciting opportunity in the long term, and uh, you know, a lot of folks are working very hard on that. There's a lot of interest. There's been some criticism of, of blue hydrogen where some claim that, you know, sure, you're capturing all this CO2 in the production process, but there's a lot of fugitive methane that, that exists in the whole supply chain. If you start from the well where the natural gas is coming from and on the pipeline and so forth, all this methane, which has a much higher CO2 equivalent than, than just CO2 itself is, is getting out there. And after you put that through a project that might be 95% capture looks more like 40 or 50% capture. So You've got a couple projects where you're claiming, you know, 95% or even zero uh, on blue hydrogen. How are you handling the the methane issue there? Great, Mark. It's a great question. This probably should be a podcast by itself, I think, right? So first of all, let me just point out that there's been at least one recent study, probably six months ago, that was, to be blunt, full of flaws. Very unreasonable uh, assumptions made to support that study. There's been many other studies that would say that there's much, much less CO2, uh, especially from a gasification project with carbon capture. But be that as it may, let, let me address your question. We're talking about our plant. So we're talking about the emissions from our facility, the CO2. So it would be the scope one and scope two in the terminology of sustainability. So either the scope one, the direct CO2 emissions, or quite frankly, the, the, uh, also the electric power used, uh, the CO2 emissions associated with that, the scope one and scope two. So to be clear, that's what we're talking about when we talk about the Canada project having a net zero footprint and the Louisiana project capturing more than 95%. I think when you go, you start to go outside of the bounds of the plant, um, you're absolutely right. You kind of go upstream to the production of the natural gas and whether it's energy consumed to produce that natural gas or some methane leakage, of course, that's outside of the direct control of us operating the plant, but there is some CO2 footprint there. We can talk about a flawed study that overstated it, but certainly there is some. But I think when you do that, Mark, you also need to look downstream and you need to think about what is the benefit of the output of this facility? So if we take a look at the, uh, let, 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 let's say the liquid hydrogen, the net zero liquid hydrogen that's gonna come off our Canada facility, we expect that to be heavily utilized in the heavy truck market. So those are trucks that are burning diesel fuel today with significant CO2 emissions. And so again, I think if you wanna take into account some CO2 emissions upstream, you've really gotta have an eye towards a balanced view of the benefit of that hydrogen downstream where it would replace trucks that absolutely would have a significant CO2 footprint. And then finally, Mark, I think we've said this many times, we don't think this is an either or question. It's not green versus blue. 
What the world needs is as much lower carbon footprint hydrogen as is possible. And we think it would be very difficult for a practical transition to only include green hydrogen. We see that there will be green hydrogen opportunities. As you pointed out, we're doing the world's largest green hydrogen project at NEOM in Saudi Arabia. But at the same time, we do see the very, very successful blue hydrogen projects. So again, from our standpoint, it's an and, not an or. Mm -hmm. Okay, great. On, on the Louisiana project, um, you're doing your own, you, you own a, a, a sequestration. Um, my understanding is you, you own the, the pore space and you're gonna be sequestering um, the, the CO2 yourself. How, how did you de-risk the, um, that whole part of the process? Because you haven't done that before, to my understanding. I mean, Port Arthur, for example, Denbury's taking it and doing something with it, and you, you don't have to worry about that part of the process. So how did you guys get comfortable around that? How did you de-risk it without any um, prior expertise necessarily? Great. Thanks, Mark. Well, you know, it turns out not a lot of people have a lot of CO2 sequestration experience and hasn't been done very much. And as you pointed out, the Port Arthur project, Denbury uses it for enhanced oil recovery. So we're very, very comfortable being fully responsible for this. As you pointed out, we Air Products signed the contract for the pore space with the state of Louisiana. So let's talk about what this is, right? Again, we talked about the CO2 recovery or the capture step. You've got CO2 compression. You've got CO2 pipeline. We operate hundreds and hundreds of miles of pipeline around the world. We know how to do that. And then there's the point, to be blunt, of digging a, a hole in the ground. And um, I say that in a little trivial way, but it's a mile deep in the ground. So, Mark, we're not going to have Air Products employees learn how to dig deep holes in the ground. We'll hire contractors, subcontractors, some of the names in this space who know how to dig these deep holes in the ground. Uh, we'll ultimately be responsible for that, but we're going to hire expertise to do that. We also, as you can imagine, we've talked uh, very often in the last two years about enhancing the resources within air products. So we've brought in some folks who have some experience in the sequestration space. But again, we're not looking to learn how to dig holes in the ground, uh, but we're very comfortable uh, taking that overall responsibility for the project. And do you, are, are you going to be taking third party CO2 at this project or, or, Along those lines, are there other, um, should, will we, should we expect to see further sequestration projects from, from APD and taking third-party CO2? I mean, you are in the business of selling CO2. Maybe you'd be in the business of taking it off other people's hands. Well, that's a great question, Mark. I think, uh, you know, what we've announced so far is we're going to sequester the CO2 off of this project. As you're well aware, we have got an awful lot of hydrogen plants on the U.S. Gulf Coast, right? Some of which are not too far away from there. So we had a conversation earlier about the possibility of retrofitting. Certainly, that's something that we've got an eye on. But I would say our primary focus is our CO2, either our existing CO2 or new projects. Now, maybe you'll be... Let me talk about the Portos project. Again, there's four or five of us are going to get together and create some synergies, you know, uh, reduce the average cost of the capital by doing this together. So I think when it makes sense for two streams to be combined, we're certainly open to that. But I don't think we're looking to, per se, create a business out of carbon capture for other people's CO2. Mm -hmm, mm -hmm. Okay, great. Well, we've, we've spent a lot of time um, talking about your your blue hydrogen and your carbon capture. I want to switch over and, and talk about green hydrogen for a minute. Um, so maybe, Simon, before 
before I get into my questions, just spend a minute explaining Neom to to the listeners. Like, what's involved there? Um, it's just the sizes, the timeline. Um, just just kind of a general overview, if you could. Great. Well, this is orders of magnitude bigger than anything anybody has done in this space. Ourselves and our partners are going to build a very large facility in Neom in the northwest corner of Saudi Arabia. And as we laugh, Mark, we're going to start with sun, wind, and seawater. So we are building a solar farm. We are building a wind farm. We are building a desalination plant. That renewable energy will be used to drive the electrolyzer to make the hydrogen from the water. It will also drive the ASU. So we'll have hydrogen and we'll have nitrogen. And we think that the advantage of doing this project there is because of the very, if you will, high quality sun and wind, we get tremendous leverage on our capital costs. So ultimately we get a very low cost of power there. But now we've got hydrogen and nitrogen in the Northwest corner of Saudi Arabia, which is not where we need it. So we got to move that hydrogen economically to the right place in the world. As I said, we've got a lot of experience doing this. So in this case, we're going to turn that hydrogen nitrogen into ammonia and then be able to utilize the existing infrastructure to move ammonia around the world and then take that to a port and take it to a space where it's going to be used, dissociate that ammonia back to hydrogen. And we see tremendous market opportunities in the heavy transportation market, trucks, buses, potentially trains. So the total project there's three partners doing the production side. Air Products is just doing the downstream side. As we communicated, that's about $7 billion of investment, which will have about 650 tons a day of truly zero carbon hydrogen on stream and available in 2026. And I probably don't need to tell you or anybody listening today, the amount of interest in that zero carbon hydrogen is just tremendous. We see a lot of announcements every day from cities or communities or government putting in place programs to support the transition uh, to this zero carbon hydrogen. Great, that's a great overview. Um, you know, and it's funny too, I'll just mention, I mean, we see other announcements about green hydrogen projects and they're in the, you know, tens of tons per day. Um, so this is quite a bit larger uh, on a scale um, that, that, that our APD is pursuing. So you constantly get questions about the cost structure and the offtakes and, and everything that would go along with this project. And, and you understandably don't discuss that because those are very important strategic things that you don't want to share. Um, but the thing that sticks out to me about this project, you know, outside of those obvious questions, are that it's very different from um, everything else that, that we've seen you do, or at least the way I think about it. Particularly if I look at the blue hydrogen projects that we were talking about in North America, they're employing technology that you have a lot of reference for uh, with gasification, um, carbon capture you've already done. They're located on pipelines that you already serve existing customers for, whereas NEOM is a totally different animal. It's a, it's a new technology. It's in a different part of the world where the customers don't exist. You talked about the complexity of, of the downstream side of it with ammonia. So, you know, what were some of the initial concerns that, that the company needed to overcome uh, when deciding to move forward with this? What was the diligence process like? Um, and then with that, I know this is a long question, but what, what might be problematic um, for, for new entrants here? Because there's a lot of these gigawatt plus uh, export projects that are on the drawing board. 
Mark, I couldn't have said it any better than you did. There's a lot of things on the drawing board. There's a lot of things that have been referenced in press releases, as we all know. But let's talk about this. One of the most exciting things about this project for us, it's innovative in the sense of bringing these things together and using ammonia as a transport mechanism and the magnitude and size. But when you start to look at each of the different technologies, these are not brand new technologies. We're not testing technologies there. So let's talk about that. A solar field, a wind farm. Um, we have got a partner in this project, Aqua Power, who is a major Middle East power project developer. And they're, by the way, they're our partner in a number of other projects. So, so we know them well. They bring that expertise in the power projects. Now it's being done as a joint venture, but I think that's a great example. Electrolyzer technology, critical to these projects, but you don't have to make your own technology. We've got a relationship with ThyssenKrupp who is gonna supply the electrolyzers, the pieces of kit to this facility. And obviously, although this is a little bit of a new application for electrolyzers, the electrolyzer technology has been around for a very, very long time. We know a little bit about an ASU, and then we come to making ammonia. Again, we're using Haldor Topso's technology, which is very, very you know, uh, well used in the, in the ammonia space. And then again, back to transporting ammonia. That's, as you well know, every day around the world, ships are transporting ammonia. And then if I go to the cracking of the ammonia, that's a well, uh, you know, uh, a technology that exists today that has been practiced, I think can be optimized. And then the final step is putting the hydrogen into the vehicles. And that's where we do have expertise. We have dispensing stations. We actually have patents on the nozzle for how to put that into the vehicle. So when we look at the whole project, it's innovative in sense of its size, its scale, its scope using ammonia. But what's great is, you know, we don't have a $7 billion test project here. We have a $7 billion real project with proven technology that's gonna bring something to market in 2026 that I think there's gonna be very significant demand for. So that's what we're excited about. Great, that, that's a great, great overview. Um, I, I know you don't like to talk about potential project announcements so much, and I'm not, I'm not gonna ask that, but just to give people a flavor, right? We've talked about uh, blue hydrogen, we've talked about carbon capture, we've talked about green hydrogen. Um, is, is there an ex sort of a, one of those that you would put as sort of the most pressing where, where the most opportunity is over the next few years? Or how do you think about, you know, all the stuff we've talked about here um, in our discussion, maybe how that plays out over the next several years? Yeah, great question, Mark. And again, I think it's, it's, there's not going to be exactly the same answer in multiple different situations, in our opinion. So what is it about? It's about having a portfolio of technologies, some we own, some we've got formal relationships with. It's about having a set of experiences and experience executing these projects and being able to bring the, to be blunt, bring the bits and pieces together in the most efficient configuration for that project. So a few years ago, we used to kind of talk about our growth platforms as being gasification, carbon capture, and hydrogen for mobility. Well, the only problem with that approach is Canada and Louisiana actually are all three of those. So there's not really a distinction, right? We, we're, we're talking about gasification in kind of a new application because we also want to do carbon capture. Part of the hydrogen output is going to get driven by hydrogen for mobility, but the hydrogen that's going to go in the pipeline networks is really driven by our customers' appetite for lower carbon hydrogen for their own operations. So I really think that you'll see a lot of different project opportunities. 
I am excited about all of the projects that we're working on that we haven't announced yet. I am sure there'll be other blue hydrogen projects. I am sure there'll be other green hydrogen projects. Neither, none of them will be exactly the same as each other. And that's one of the big benefits of having a broad set of experiences. Yep, yep. Well, um, this has been great, Simon. I've got one more question, and this is something that we're asking everybody is to make a prediction. Um, so this is really a long-term thing, three to five years or, or more, and, and we're not going to hold you accountable. It's really just about providing something that that's thought-provoking and, and might be off the radar for investors. So, um, so with that, what's your prediction? Well, Mark, it's 2027. And the world is on its energy transition journey. And the world needs hydrogen for that energy transition journey. And the world wants and needs low carbon hydrogen. And they need a lot of it. Buses and trucks and trains and airplanes are using hydrogen. There's a lot of industrial processes that use hydrogen. And Air Products will have three major projects on stream at that time supporting the customer demand. I think the demand will be significantly greater than the supply and people will look back to 2020 when Air Products announced the NEON project and say, well, that was obvious. It's quite frankly, it's like Tesla right now. Well, it's obvious that they should make an electric vehicle. Look how successful it's going to be. But it wasn't as obvious for a long time. And I think right now people are excited about this, but there's a little bit of a sense of let's wait and see. And I think five years from now, the world's going to look back at the innovation, the first mover advantage air products created and say, well, that was obvious, but we're going to have created that first mover advantage that we'll be leveraging for decades to come. So that's my prediction. That's a, that's a great place to leave it. Thanks so much, Simon. We really appreciate you coming on and uh, look forward to catching up soon. Mark, thanks to you and the rest of the Cowan team and uh, happy to come back and chat anytime you'd like. Thanks for joining us. Stay tuned for the next episode of Cowan Insights.